good to be with you guys here today. I have bad news. Today is close to the end of June, so we're in the middle of summer. It's no longer fun to go outside. It's just hot and gross and uncomfortable. I never have liked the heat, which people in the first service uh, in the front row made sure to remind me that I'm from Las Vegas, and I reminded them it's a dry heat, so it's different, okay? It's not the same as here. It's different. But no, I have never enjoyed the heat. Uh, but thank you so much for being here today. My name is Christian. I'm on the ministry team here at Journey um, as a church playing resident. If you didn't know this, I've been here for two and a half years now, me and my family, uh, my wife, and our three kids. Now we came here with two, and now we have three. Don't know how that happened, but now we have three. Um, and we are getting ready to actually move in four weeks from today to go back to Las Vegas or hometown uh, to plant a church a year from now. And we would not be in this position without this church's support and love and encouragement and the leadership here. And so we are sad but excited to go, um, and we're going to savor these four weeks. And the way we're going to do that is by talking about the Bible. So we have been five weeks now into a series called Kingdom Come. Uh, we've been talking about all the exciting things of the end times and the return of Jesus. That's been what Jesus has been talking about since Matthew 24. His disciples came to him and, they, and he asked them a few different questions about his return, about the end of the world, about the temple being destroyed. And Jesus has sought fit to take all of Matthew 24 and 25 to answer their questions. It's the longest recorded answer in all of the New Testament that we have been unpacking now for five Weeks. We've been learning about why it's important to know about the future, that knowing about how that day will come helps us live today. It informs our present life. Having a snapshot of the future should change the way that we live today. We've learned about some of the things we can look out for to know when is this getting close, when are the things looking about it's going to finish up. We've learned about the grace gifts that God has given us to endure and the things he's entrusted to us and responsible to carry out. We've learned a lot, and we're halfway through, so we've got more to learn. Today, if you would turn to Matthew 24, 36 through 51 is going to be our passage today. And I really think that the first verse in our scripture is really a, a 30,000 foot view of what we'll be talking about today and really in the coming weeks. This is what it says in Matthew 24, 36. Jesus says, but about the day or hour, that is his return, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven or the son, that's himself, but only the father. So Jesus sees fit to start this entire section of Scripture with a reminder. After all the things that we've talked about, he wants them to know. But about all these things, no one really knows when they're going to happen. Not me, not you, not the angels. Only the Father knows when this will take place. And all of 36 to 51 is really trying to get us this idea across. Our job is not to try to figure out when Jesus is returning, but to know what to do while we wait. That's really a simple way to understand what we're going to be talking about and unpacking today. And I would say in the coming weeks that it's not our job to decipher the exact calendar date of when he's going to return, but to know what we need to be doing in the meantime while we wait for him to come back. Now, before we jump into our text today, i got a couple things I want to cover uh, that I felt rise up in my heart as I was studying this passage. I just felt the need to kind of address these two warnings, as I'm calling them, before we dive into unpacking the scriptures that I'll be reading today. And the first warning is this. I don't want you to misunderstand the weight of this passage. I don't want you to misunderstand the weight of this passage. What do you mean by that? Jesus is going to say here and a couple more times that no one knows when he will be coming. We just read that. We're just talking about that. And he's going to say it again a couple more times, a few more times, so you better get used to hearing that. Which is interesting because there are a lot of godly, well-meaning people who have tried to figure out when Jesus is going to come back. Or they've claimed very passionately that we are going to see it happen in our lifetime. And listen, I would be all for that. Sign me up. 
But every generation of people who have been in the church thus far for 2,000 years have thought the same thing. And if you look around, what you'll find is that they've been wrong because we're still here. And again, disappointingly, they're probably upset about that. And though it is true logically that the more that we move through time and the later we get away from the date that Jesus has ascended into heaven, we are closer to the times that he will return. That's just logically true. But I feel like when we talk about these things and people get up on a stage and they get very excited about, man, it's going to happen right now. The world's ending. Get ready for it. It's like, Maybe, but that's not really the point Jesus is trying to get across. I feel like it undermines a little bit of what he was teaching his disciples. It wasn't to get excited if it's close. It's get ready because it could happen at any point in time. Not only, hey, you should care about this if it's in the lifetime that we're going to see it. It's like regardless of if it is or isn't, you need to know that at any moment in time, Jesus could return right now. We're good. So we're still going. All right. So it could happen, though, at any point in time. And that should be the weight of this passage. Not that we have a calendar date, but that we know there's this tension. Like PC taught last week, that we know there's an imminent return coming, but that's all we know. And so we got to be prepared for that to happen. So don't miss the weight of that passage. We're not looking for an exact time. We're just knowing, man, we, we could be in that lifetime right now, but we may not. It could be a thousand years from now. Who knows? We'll find out. The second thing I want you not to miss or be warned about is don't ignore the repetition of this passage. You may be already feeling that right now, of the sense that I've been talking about the same thing for about five minutes. You might be thinking, hey man, can't we move on? But the problem is the text demands we talk about these things. And as I'm looking over what we're going to be teaching the next couple weeks, even today, I'm thinking, man, I know myself. If I hear something once and then you repeat it, I'm not listening because I heard it once already. My wife would tell you I don't remember everything I hear once, but I still tune everything out that I've heard several times. She's not happy about it. That's just how it is, okay? Maybe you're like me in that way. Maybe you're like someone that when you get on the airplane and you see the flight attendant go through all the safety procedures, you've heard it a million times, and you have your earphones in, you could not care less about what they're doing because chances are you're going to be fine. Maybe if it's your first time flying, you're taking notes because you're like freaking out if you're going to crash and burn. But most of the time you won't, right? We're going to be okay. But those things that you hear, if we're not careful, we'll just gloss over it. We'll just tune them out especially when we're talking about the same things over and over again, but in different angles. And I just felt that as I was studying this passage of like, man, we got to be careful here, not just to be thinking we already have heard this, because there is value in repetition. In fact, I want to give you three things that repetition is before we continue today. And I'm going to put them on the screen behind me. Repetition is insightful, safe, and important. It's insightful. Have you ever considered when you read the Bible, when you see verses on the screen, when we, you hear from people on a stage like this in church to do or not to do something, have you ever considered what that is saying about you and me? Other than just things that we should do or not do, have you ever really thought of what is that revealing about you and me? Let me give you an example. Next month, all my kids were somehow, in a great mysterious way, born in the month of July. So come next month, I'm going to be a father of a six, four, and one-year-old. My six and four-year-old keeps us very busy these days. My one-year-old's getting there now. He's in everything. We'll talk about him in a moment. But my six and four-year-old, they love to play together, praise God. They also fight all the time. And naturally, as a married couple, me and my wife, we like to try to get away and go on a date at least every other week. If we can do more, that's awesome. But at least in a couple times a month, we're getting away for a few hours for dinner, watching a movie, maybe both. But we just know, like, we got to remove ourselves from kids so we can be together as husband and wife. So that necessitates a babysitter. We've thought about before just locking them in a room, thinking what more can they really do? Like, 
they're probably going to be fine for three hours, but understanding that's probably not the wisest thing we have a babysitter come and watch our kids. So what we do, though, before we get ready to leave, I get down to the level, my six- and four-year-old, and I look at them, and I give them some, they give them some guidelines that I want to make sure they know. Not to be crazy, not to roughhouse, not to wrestle, not to jump on the couch, not to be disrespectful, not to scream really loud, things like that. I make sure they know don't do those things, and I make sure they know as any good parent, that if they do those things and I hear about them from the babysitter, they will spend the night outside. I just want them to know there's repercussions for their actions. Now, let me ask you this question. Do you think I do that because my kids have never done those things ever in their life, and on the offhand chance that in this situation they decide to do those things, I want them to know that in my absence I told them not to do it? Or is it because I know my kids, and I know what they're inclined to do, even when I'm there? I know what they're inclined to do and what they're inclined not to do. And so I want to make sure that as mom and dad leave, to make sure clearly some things that I know that they'll want to do, that they should not do those things. In the same way, when we read Scripture, the same book over and over again, we come across commands and verses that we are very familiar with maybe. We need to be careful to know those are revealing something about you and me. Because it's not just commands for us to follow, but it's saying these are things that you and I are not inclined to do or inclined to do that we know we shouldn't do. It's revealing things about you and I and our brokenness as sinful human beings. This is what Hebrews 4 says about the Word of God. It says this, The Word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. How does it do that? It does that by reading us as we read it. As you go through scripture, you read a command to be meek, to be kind, to be loving. You need to ask yourself, man, why am I not naturally those things? Because that's what it's assuming. You need to be told this because you're not going to do this or you're not doing this right now. When it tells you to refrain from being greedy or lying or harming someone, it's because we might have an inclination to do just that. That's how you should approach the Bible as you read it. Hopefully you're reading with us this year. We're reading through the whole thing. Maybe you jumped in the summer, so you're reading half of it with us, whatever it is. Our whole lives should have some rhythm of reading the Bible consistently and constantly. And it's the same book. It doesn't change. It's a physical book with the same words and letters printed, bound for us to study for the rest of our days. But its knowledge and truth and wisdom is limitless. So you may have heard someone talk about before that they maybe have been walking with the Lord for 40 years, and even today they'll read stuff in the Scripture that they don't remember reading. There'll be a passage that looks like it's just got dropped in there from nowhere. It's always been there, but here's what happens. It's a living and active book, and we have a Holy Spirit of God in us that illuminates passages for us at the right time and reveals things to us. And so we can be diligent to read the same things over and over again because it can speak in a different way every time. It's revealing something about us. It's insightful in that way. Secondly, it's safe. Repetition is safe for us. We just simply forget too quickly and easily, if we're honest. We hear something and probably will not remember, remember it forever, unless it's something significant and packs it some way. But a lot of times, information goes in one ear and out the other. I read once in a book that we need to be reminded much more than instructed. We need to be instructed, but a lot of times, especially as we're talking about the Bible, there's a lot of reminders that are needed for us to walk this thing out. Paul knew this well when he wrote a letter to the church of Philippi. He wrote this in Philippians 3.1. My brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. 
Paul would say in another place that he stirs people up in wave reminder. If you know the book of Philippians, it's a book, it's a, it's a letter of joy. He's always talking about joy. He's calling them to rejoice several times. And he's saying, look, I'll write this a million times if I have to. It's no problem for me to repeat myself. Because it's good for you to hear this and it's a safeguard for you. See, God has not given us a book of just commands and rules to drown us in them. He's given them for us for our good, for our safety. I'm going to give you another example of my one-year-old, little baby Judah. He's now next week or two weeks. What date is it, 25th? Next week. Yeah, he's, a, he's one year's next week. I'm a great dad. He will be one years old, and uh, he's at the stage, I think, they're like the funnest, like the cutest. Like his personality is coming out. He's loud. He's getting it everywhere. He's starting to almost take steps. He's not yet, but he's crawling everywhere. He's just insane. And he's also just on a path of carnage. So everything, he wants to just pull things off of tables, coffee tables. If he can reach it, it's going to the ground. Then he's smashing it. He's just insane. He also has no care for himself. So if he sees a flight of stairs, he's thinking, I'm going to go down those stairs. He can't go downstairs, but he's going to tumble down those stairs. And he doesn't care. So he'll go to the edge, and he'll slip, he'll tumble. That may have happened twice now. Once, between, once with dad watching, once with mom watching. It's not just dad, Okay. So last week we're in a hotel and I have him on the bed and we're playing around and whatnot. Eventually he sees the edge of the bed and he locks on and he makes a beeline for this thing. And I know this. We've seen this happen time and time again. He starts scooching his way to the edge of the bed and with no slowing down in slight, I'm just watching him as a father and I just know where this is going. I'm like, this guy. And as he gets to the very edge and he starts to kind of lean over, his momentum's about to take him. I reach out and I grab that fat little ankle and I just hold him and I say, no. And he looks back at me, and he kind of laughs and giggles, and he's, like, twisting around. At first, it's fun. Eventually, though, I'm not letting go, and he gets mad and starts crying, and he's screaming at me. And I know he wished he could tell me, let go of me. I want to go. And I would say to him, no. Do you think I'm trying to rob my son of the joy of falling off a bed? (laughs) No. I'm not trying to do that. I know as his dad, if I let go of this ankle, that dude is toppling over, probably going to hit his head and be seriously injured. He doesn't know that. He doesn't understand that. But dad understands that. So dad's going to hold him back and say, "Uh uh-uh, buddy, not going to happen. Now let me have you think of this. If there's such a gap in understanding between a one-year-old and a 28-year-old dad, how much more of a gap is there between me and you and God? How much more is there a gap of us thinking we know better, us wanting to go do something our own way, and he's there holding our ankles, saying no. And we're thinking, what's the deal? How much more do you think there's a gap there where we need to understand we don't have all the answers? We don't know everything. My little boy, even my six and four-year-olds, like they don't think, they think they know better than me right now. It's just obvious, which is hilarious. They don't. How much more? You and I might feel that towards God. And what we have to understand is that he is not trying to rob us the joy of walking in sin and falling into temptation. He's trying to protect us by telling us what to do and not to do because he knows how this thing is supposed to be lived. He knows where life is actually found. He knows where we can get hurt. So it's safe for us to hear these things over and over again. The third thing is it's important. Repetition emphasizes something. Obviously, the Bible were to say something once, that's enough for you and me to listen to it and apply it to our lives for the rest of our days, right? It's just, it's said, it's done. It doesn't need to be said several times to be significant. But the biblical writers will oftentimes in Old and New Testament will repeat themselves to add emphasis to something. And what we can see here, what we will see is that Jesus is really trying to get us to pay attention, 
to not gloss over what we've already heard, but to lean in even more. Because what does that say about you and me? What does it say about you and me that we have to hear him say these things time and time again? It's that we need to remember them, that we will forget, that we will ignore them. We won't want to listen to them. So he says it over and over again to show us this is important. Don't miss this. Repetition is insightful, it's safe, and it's important. So those things being clear now, and I hope you can take those for the rest of your days following Jesus as you read the Bible and you follow him. Remember those things as you read this book time and time again. But with that being said, and the baseline of our big idea that we don't know when Jesus is returning, but we need to know what to do while we wait, there's two pairings of characteristics that we have today that we need to be because we don't know when Jesus will return. So the first one is this. We need to be alert and ready. We got to be alert and ready. Read with me Matthew 24, 36 through 44. It says this. But about the day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill, one will be taken, the other left. Verse 42, therefore, keep watch, because you don't know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have left his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Even in that passage, he said like three times. He wants us to make sure we understand. You don't know when, so you need to be alert and you need to be ready. He says the end times when he returns, the day and the, the state of our day is going to be a lot like the times of Noah. Which in the very beginning of the Bible, after the Garden of Eden, after the Tower of Babel, what we see is eventually the earth populates to a point where there's people all over the globe. But it is a place of utter brokenness and rebellion. The only family found to be righteous is that of Noah. And so Noah, or God comes to Noah and tells him, I need to reset the earth. I'm going to start everything again with you and your family. And so he gives them instructions to build a mass, a giant vessel, an ark, a boat to house himself and other animals in it to protect him from the flood so he can wash clean the globe and start over through him. And the way that he characterizes it is not that they're necessarily being evil, even though they were back in the day when you read in Genesis about the times of Noah, but he's just saying, man, there's people who are giving people away in marriage. They're eating and drinking, not necessarily doing things bad, but they're just indifferent. They just don't care. They're watching this guy build a giant ark and no one's asking questions. No one's thinking, hey, he knows what's going on. In fact, Peter would tell us that Noah even had opportunities to preach to these people about what were, was to come, and they simply ignored it. And Jesus is saying, in order for us not to be caught sleeping, he's telling us to keep watch, which could be, literally means to watch or to refrain from sleep or to be on alert. That's what he's calling us to. Listen, five weeks in, week after week, we can confidently say this. We cannot be like those people in the days of Noah. We can't act like this isn't happening. We can't act like it may not happen or it's not going to happen anytime soon. Jesus wants his disciples and you and me today to feel the weight of this reality, to feel the tension and the urgency that, man, this could happen at any moment in time. You do not know when, so don't be caught sleeping. We need to be ready and alert. Our flesh and natural tendency will be want to ignore this. We talked about week one. It's hard to have an eternal perspective on life. It just is. I'll be the first to admit it. 
I would rather focus on what's around me right now than think of eternal matters and think of the weighty truths that we believe out of the Bible. I got stuff to take care of and things to be busy with. It's just easier not to think of those things. And we have to fight to keep this in front of us. I mean, not only because of what's at stake, but because of what we're responsible for now. Look at verses 42 to 44. He tells us, keep watch because you don't know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour you do not expect him. So it's funny. He uses this illustration because it's actually not totally equal with you and I. He says that if you had a house that you owned, as most of you probably do, and you heard, hey, some guy's going to break into your house or try to at 2.45 a.m. tonight. You would take that and you would say thank you, and you would not just go to sleep as normal as you usually would at night. Instead, you would make preparations. You would call the police. You might board up your house. You might stay awake. You might have a firearm. I don't know. You might be ready to rock and roll. This guy's going to try to come through your house. He's going to meet some pushback. You would not just go to sleep and think, "Eh, it's fine. Jesus is saying that you, likewise, know that a thief is coming. The Bible often will say that Jesus' return will be like a thief in the night. It's going to be at a time we don't expect it. He says, you know, when the thief, you know that the thief is coming. The problem is you don't know when. So you can't afford to go to sleep. You can't afford not to be ready at all times because you're not given an alarm clock. You're not given a time to know. Think about it. This actually is why people think it's important that he didn't tell us when he'd return because if we knew, we could slack off. There's no urgency. Like, Imagine the disciples knowing what we know today. If Jesus was like, get this, guys. This hair is all going to go down. I'm going to be back in maybe 2,000 years. What do you think? They'd be like, uh, okay. <laughs> I guess we'll just continue on with life then. I mean, like, what urgency would they have if they knew, oh, you're not going to do all this stuff for at least 2,000, maybe more years? Talk about sucking the air out of the room. They're thinking this could happen in their lifetime. And instead, if they knew that it wouldn't happen until now or later, Where's the, where's the weight? Where's the urgency of that? So Jesus intentionally, I think, God is knowing everything, is saying, you know that this is coming, but you don't know when. So feel that weight. Feel that tension. Feel that urgency. Okay, well, what does that mean then to keep watch? What does it look like for us to do that? And luckily, the disciples again will help us out here in Acts 1. Acts 1 takes place after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's at the time where he's about to ascend into heaven. The church is going to be born and then grow over time. So this would take place after Matthew 24 and 25, after he gave them this teaching of the end times. They're sitting here on a mountain now with Jesus, the resurrected Christ, and they're coming to him with some questions, wondering, is it time? Look what it says in Acts 1, 6 through 11. Then they gathered around him, that's the disciples, and asked him, Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They probably think that this is the end times. They probably think this is his return. All right, you left, you died, you resurrected. Now now it's time, right? Like all the stuff you told us in Matthew 24 and 25, it's, it's happening right now, right? And look what he replies. It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Instead, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Verse 9, after he said this, he was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. 
So unfortunately for them, they witnessed not the end, but the beginning of his departure. They again want to know, is this it? And what does Jesus hit him with? The same thing. It's not for you to know. It's not the point. Now, funny enough, this passage is kind of hilarious. If you were paying attention and reading it, what you just realized is that Jesus gives them this command. He tells them, don't worry about the time. Go take the gospel to the ends of the earth. You're going to have the Holy Spirit. It's going to help you. Then he descends up into heaven. They watch him. I would too, just staring at this man floating to the sky. He disappears, and we have to assume that they looked at the sky for a significant amount of time because the good Lord felt needed to send two angels down there to go down there and say, hey, guys, you all right? Did you miss something? He said, go. That's what he told you to do. And they say they're looking intently in the sky, and two men appear, and they're like, hey, fellas, he's, he's going to come back, but just go. Go do your thing. So what does that tell us? We don't need to intently be watching the sky to see if Jesus is coming back to say that we're watching for him. We got a team about to go to Israel for a, a couple weeks now. They're going to go there where this actually took place. I'm sure some of them are going to stand there, and they're going to pause a minute just wondering, is it? And it may not happen. It may happen. We will find out. But that's not what he's telling us to do. He's not saying, come here and make sure you keep watch for me to descend. He's not telling us to do that. He told them, instead of worrying about when, go and be my witnesses. You got a job to do while I'm away. My spirit's going to come to you, live in you, and empower you to share the gospel and take it to the ends of the earth. That is priority number one. That's how you stay ready and alert. This is what the point means here for us today. To stay alert and ready means for us to be spiritually active in the world around us as we wait for Jesus to return. That's what it means. To be alert and ready means for you to be spiritually active in the world around you as you and I wait for him to come back. Man, I got caught sleeping a couple weeks ago, spiritually speaking. I was in a city going to a conference with a bunch of pastors and church leaders and members And so I got an Uber trying to get to my hotel, and my Uber driver was there, very friendly. Her name was Felicia, and we're just going back and forth, kind of having, you know, some talking. We're just talking about our lives and why I'm in the city, where she comes from, where I come from. And I'm explaining the conference I'm going to. It's got pastors and church members, and so she's picking up on some religious tones, right? So she asked me the question. She says, what religion are you? And I respond to her, Christianity, proudly, right? Christianity, that's what I am. And she hears that, and she responds, what do you mean by Christianity? And I don't think in the moment I reacted as I did internally, but internally I was like, what? I was like, what, what was that question? And so I helpfully just responded with the same answer I just gave her, thinking she'd catch on like we always do, that never works. And I just say, Christianity, you know, Jesus, you know, that whole thing. And it's just nothing. So then I sit down in our drive with Felicia. I just, in a very short and sweet way, trying to be simple, explaining the gospel, the creation account, what we believe, the fall of man, the redemption, all these things, and what I'm doing there, what I believe God's called me to do. And by the way, when I do this from stage in a room like this, it feels normal to talk about those things. We're in an Uber. You sound like a psychopath. It's crazy. It's just crazy. But I believe these things, you know? So I'm talking about creation and a serpent, and then, you know, and then it's just crazy. And she hears these things, she's nodding, and she's following me, and I ask her, have you ever heard anything like that before? And she just says, not like that, no. And then my heart broke because I'm thinking, how many Felicias have I passed by in my life that God has put in my path that I was not alert or ready for? Like, this is in America. This person has no idea about Christianity, has never heard the gospel in this way. Blew me away. And I'm sitting there convicted of, like, how many times have I not been sensitive to what God's doing around me to have a moment like this. Let me ask you, would you be ready? 
If you were in the car with Felicia in that moment, would you be able to share with her the gospel, what God's done in your life? You don't have to use fancy terms. You don't have to know big words. Just would you be ready? Are you alert to those opportunities? Man, I'm convicted of that. I can walk in a place, and I know I can start a conversation because of what I do, like my job. If I ask someone, hey, what do you do? And they're like, I work in a factory. What do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh, interesting. All of a sudden, gospel, right? I know that I can get in those conversations pretty quick. And, man, I hate to say it, but sometimes I'm trying to just get to point A and point B. I'm not trying to have those conversations all the time. And I just felt after this encounter, it's like, man, am I keeping watch? For God bringing people into my life who maybe like Felicia has never heard but who would be open to hearing to share with them the gospel. And I felt like I got caught sleeping. Where are you at today with that? Are you alert and ready? The second thing that we need to be is faithful and wise. You got to be faithful and wise. Verse 45 to 51, it says this. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in this household to give them their food at the proper time. It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is sitting away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not wear of, there it is again, he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So some interesting things to note in these verses. The first term that's used to describe you and me is the word servant, which could actually be better translated as bond servant or slave. We could be called or referred to often as slaves of Christ or of God. In fact, Paul and the apostles in the New Testament, they would refer to themselves in this way. Jesus himself would be referred to as a slave in Philippians 2, as an example for us to follow. One Greek scholar, knowing uh, this word, he describes it as this, a slave, one who is in permanent relation of servitude to another, his will being altogether consumed in the will of the other. That's the definition of that word. That's what it means to be a servant of God. Softball toss of a question for you and me today. Can that be said true of your relationship with God today? Would you say that's kind of how it works with you and him? Would you say that your will is altogether consumed with his will, what he's trying to do? I think that's really hard for us to say that's true of us, isn't it? I would say that's a very difficult thing for us to even want in our life. A pastor and author, Mark Sayers, who's in Australia right now, he's written a few books now on this movement of post-Christianity in Europe and North America. And he defines post-Christianity as this, that people want the kingdom without the king. That's how he would describe what we're seeing now in America a little bit with people who have heard about Christianity, they've lived in Christianity, and now they're kind of past it. They're over it. They're post-Christian. He's saying what they're saying is people are still open to the things of Christianity. They still want and yearn for those things, even if they wouldn't use the same terms, but they're rejecting this king of ours and saying, I don't want your Jesus I'll take your justice and I'll take your joy. I'll take your hope. I'll take all that stuff. That's great. Flourishing in society, but you can keep your master. And my only pushback is not that I don't think that describes post-Christianity. I just think that that describes human nature in general from the dawn of time. We mentioned a little bit, but the Garden of Eden. How Adam and Eve, the first humans to fall, who ushered in sin into the world that broke everything. The first temptation for them 
was to be a God, was to have the power to rule, to not just be like God in the, same, in the sense of being in his likeness and image, which we are today, but to have no one over them, to have that autonomy that we talked about. So this is hard for us to hear because in our heart, we're constantly rebelling against him, wanting to do things our way. We don't want anyone calling the shots. We want to do our own thing. But the reality is that's not true for who we are today in Christ. We are, in fact, these servants, these slaves of him. In fact, look what Paul said to the church in Corinth and writing to them, trying to get them to fight sin. He says this in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Glorify him with your life. Paul wants them to know as you're fighting, just remember this. You are a sacred temple of God with the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. And you are bought with a hefty price of the blood of Jesus. And the only response to that is joyfully honoring him with everything that we have and been given. You may hear this and think, this does not sound very appealing to me to be considered a slave to God. But the truth is, we are all slaves of something. Paul would say this in Romans 6. He would say, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. A couple of verses down. What benefit did you reap at the time from the things you are now ashamed of? Talking about our former life in sin. He's saying, what did you get from that? Following and living in sin. What did you reap other than shame? The things that result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin... And become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. Because get this, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, what's crazy here is that to be a slave of God is actually to be free. To be a slave of anything else is only to be imprisoned that leads to death. We sing a song about the chains being broken. That's true. That's true of you if you put your faith in Jesus. What the Bible tells us that you and me are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are enslaved to our sin nature and can do nothing to break out of it. We can't do anything good. We're dead. We can do nothing to help ourselves. And the gospel is that where there was no way, God made a way by sending his son Jesus to die for us. The wages of our sin was death. And the only thing to, to, to buy us back was the life of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh who went to the cross, died, and rose again to show that his sacrifice was accepted by God. And now, you and me, by putting our faith and trust in his finished work, we stand before him not judged, but accepted and justified, having a new identity in him, able to follow him, able to walk in his ways from a true and obedient heart. That's not slavery, that's freedom. I talked about it earlier. It's not the commands of God that are burdening us and drowning us. It's how life was intended to be lived, and there's joy in his ways. Everything else, sin and temptation, promises happiness but never delivers. And it only leads to shame, brokenness, and ultimately death. But to be a slave of God is to have eternal life. To walk in holiness. And that's what we are today. We've been given one life. And as our only response is to live it for him. This is what we mean when we're talking about this point. To be faithful and wise means to live our lives for God's will and purposes alone. That's what it means to be faithful and wise, what he's entrusted to you. You get one life on this earth. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. We also don't know when we're going to be taken home. I don't know how many days I have on this earth. 
I hope a full life. But I don't know when. And it's my job as a steward to be faithful and wise what he's entrusted to me. This body, this life, the breath in my lungs, the kids he's given to me, my wife, my belongings, possessions, my influence. I am to be a faithful and wise steward of those things. The opposite is to be a wicked one, to be a wicked servant as he describes it. Who sees the delay of the master as not an opportunity to do good, but an opportunity to do evil. And you may read this passage and think, well, I'm not doing the crazy things he's talking about. I'm not beating anyone. I'm not getting drunk with people. But in reality, to be wicked is simply just to live, not for the master, but for yourself. With Jesus, there's not, either, there's not halfway in. There's in or out, obedient, disobedient, faithful, unfaithful, wise or foolish. Jesus wants his followers to be all in. There's not a middle ground there. So where are you living? We look at your life for a week. Would we think that you are all in on this Jesus guy? Would we see this faithful and wise servant? Or would we see it kind of only contained to a Sunday morning affair? And then the rest of your life is kind of your own deal. When in reality we do these things because we think it's better for us and in our best interest to do whatever we want, but the truth is to live in such a way as actually to experience life to its fullest. To not be wicked, but to be faithful. It's interesting that in every parable, every passage that Jesus mentions about his return, he always includes a delay. I feel like he, he had to be hinting to the disciples, it's going to take a minute. It's not going to be immediate. I'm going to leave and it's going to take a second. And we have to remember that God's timing is different than our timing. Look what it says in 2 Peter 3. He says this, do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. So according to this verse, Jesus has been gone for a whole two days. I don't actually think that's how we should interpret time. But the point that Peter's trying to get across is this. He's just on a different field with us. Time is different with him. He's outside of time. So what feels long to us and slow to us to him is, is really not that at all. There's purpose behind it. Why exactly would he take this long to return? Why is he waiting? I'll keep reading with Peter. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See, Jesus is delaying his return because he's being patient with us. With you and me as believers, so that we can be faithful and wise what he's given us to be his witness in the world, but also he's being patient with those who don't know him. He's being patient with people like Felicia, who has never heard the gospel until recently. And prayerfully, Lord willing, she'll hear it again and she'll respond one day. And he's keeping that window open. Because once he returns, that window is shut. And the only thing left is judgment. There's no opportunity for the gospel to go out. It's over. And so the more he delays, the more opportunity there is for us to reach people with the gospel. He's given us time to be faithful and wise with the lives he's entrusted us. And Peter agrees when he continues and says this. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. There it is. 
The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will all be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and the speed of its coming. If you get anything out of this sermon today, I hope it's this. Go and live godly and holy lives and live in light of his imminent return. Look forward to that day. Walk in his ways with him, witnessing to the world what he's done in your life, the great things you've seen, the salvation you've received. Live alert and ready and be faithful. And trust him with what he does with the results. Because he's going to come back at a time we don't know. And until then, our job is not to know when, but it's to know what to do. We're going to transition now into a time of reflection. We just want to give you a time now after all the things that you've heard, the scripture we've unpacked, and just have a conversation with the Lord. These questions are just meant to be conversation pieces with you and him. To ask a question, to respond, maybe to repent of something, to ask for forgiveness for something. Maybe it's to ask for clarity in your next step or what to do, what needs to change in your life. Know this, that if you're someone today and you feel like, man, I have not done any of this. I've blown it. I've lived for myself. I'm just guilty. I want you to know there's grace to cover the guilt. Always. There's always grace to come back and start over. That's the beauty of the gospel. He doesn't like people hanging their heads. He wants you to hang them high and to run with him. So I'm going to give you time to reflect, and then after that, I'll come back and close out in a time of prayer. Then we're actually going to have a time of commissioning our Israel team before we dismiss, so we'll lead through all that. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for this opportunity, God. I pray right now that you would speak to us in this time, maybe more, more clearly than ever before in this service, Lord. Would you show us what you want us to hear and want us to do? Lord, give us a heart right now of surrender. As servants of you, let our wills be bound up in yours. Let us be only concerned about doing what is your will and your purposes today. Speak to us now, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.